Chapter Eight of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: My Soldier Servant, Blob's Love Affair. Field days on the grand scale came off about once a week. The intervening times were filled up with all sorts of highly important training. So life for the division was one of ceaseless activity and hard labor. I used to be free at about 4 p.m., when I would retire to my wooden hut to have a rest, decide what I was going to do that evening, and plan the next day. It was the usual simple sort of officer's hut, and all I had inside was a camp bed, a washstand, a tin bath, and a table. My bag and valise were all my luggage, and they were in the corner. It was winter time and pretty cold, too, so a fire was urgently necessary in the little stove. A few days after I had adopted this hut for a home, I had procured my soldier servant. He belonged to a regiment coming from one of England's eastern counties. He was the most charming example of that rapidly dying class, the plowboy yokel, that you could possibly find. The whole simplicity of his life and mind, combined with the constitution of a rhinoceros, gave him a most lovable aspect to me. Until I caught this specimen, I didn't know that such things still lived, and when I found that they did, I was annoyed and troubled to think of the danger that such a genuine, simple creature ran, of having his outlook altered by this ideal-shaking war. He was about twenty years old and as strong as an ox, thick-set, short, with a healthy red complexion, he was just the sort of rustic type that, on the stage, sucks a straw and wears a smock. His head was delightfully thick as well. It took him a long time to fully grasp anything you wanted him to do, but when he had got hold of the idea and digested the fact that you wanted him to do whatever it might be, he went at it with the relentless vigor of a charging bison. This blossom hadn't done any soldier-servant work before, so all was new to him and I used to derive considerable amusement by knowing full well that he thought I was insane in most of my desires and tastes. I told him how to look after the hut and when to light the stove. He thought it all slowly over and then carried out these items with unfailing precision and thoroughness. I remember the first time when I told him I wanted a bath. He was standing in the doorway having finished whatever it was and was evidently waiting for me to tell him something else to do. Blobs, I said, I want a bath, hot water, do you see, and then fill up this tin thing here, I indicated the bath. In a queer, hesitating manner, he repeated, I see, you wants a bath. I said, yes, I want a bath. He fingered the bath about a bit, half went to the door, and then stood looking at me in a hesitating way. After a few moments' pause, he suddenly jerked out, I'd better get it now, and disappeared like a jack-in-the-box through the doorway. He returned later with a vast volume of scalding water, about enough for three baths, all having been conveyed there by himself in a collection of canvas buckets. I wished I'd asked him for the bath itself as well. I'm sure he would have gone to some house and severed a porcelain one from its pipe connections and brought it along. He had no personal initiative but when guided and commanded he was nearly as good as one of those dear old genie in the Arabian Nights. Rub the lamp and it appears sort of thing. He woke me in the morning by a method all his own. I watched him once or twice with my eyes feigning sleep. He would bring along my clothes and boots and put them near the one and only chair. 
Then he would bring a pail of hot water and then hesitate a bit. He appeared to be thinking deeply. After a minute or two's hesitancy, he would suddenly come to the side of my bed and say in a loud voice, "'Shall you be wantin' the stove?' This sentence, you will observe, combined waking me with getting instructions. Why he always did it this way, goodness knows. I soon ceased to try and probe into his beautiful mind. He interested me intensely, this man. I soon began leading him on into conversations about himself and about his private and home life. Later on I encouraged him into discourses on his love affairs. It appeared that he had a girl. In other words, he was a courtin'. Splendid, I thought. Now I'll get some funny stuff out of this cove. And I did. Conversation one morning conducted something like this. Have you had any leave yet, Blobs? I expect you'd like to go back to your home for a day or two, eh? Go back and see that girl of yours? Blobs, with a rubicund grin. Oi, I shouldn't off loik a bit of leave. The sergeant says the other night that he thought as ow oi was going soon, and, bashfully, she won't off be pleased to see me, too, I reckon. Business of critically examining a roll of chillblains on the back of his hand. What did she say when you joined the army, Blobs? Blobs. Just afore I joined, she wouldn't speak to me. It was because I was driving Dad's thrashing machine down the road past her house. She says, Arthur, you never looks at me now that you are a-driving that there thrashing machine. You see, she thought I was a-doing the grand, soon as I got to driving Dad's big engine. One day I sees her by the rick in her dad's farm, and I picks up a pitchfork, and I runs at her like this. Imitation, savage run with pitchfork. She says, Why do you do that, Arthur? I says, Cause I'm going to join the army, sis, that's why. So I chucks down me pitchfork, and she says as she was proud of me, and now she writes to me regular every week. That's right, Blobs, you stick to her, and she'll stick to you. Now you might just go and get me a bucket of water as I want to have a wash before lunchtime. Do a log closed. I've often wished that I could hear that that splendid simple country Jake got back safely to Sis and his thrashing machine out of all this devastating turmoil. End of chapter 8 Recording by Philip Gould